Okay. We have two things to do. One is to talk about prayer more in a more focused way, and then to talk about fasting. We've spent a lot of time on the Word and its function in, in mediating the presence of God and the experience of God. And now we want to talk more about our response, our part, our talking, not just God's talking toward us, saying, I chose you, you're holy, I love you. You should hear God in that. But now, what do we do? What do we say back? What is prayer? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 98. There's a great story behind this. Some of you remember it. I've told it before. Where Moody, D.L. Moody, 150 years ago or whenever, came to Scotland and he was asked as part of his crusade to go to a, a day school where there were a chapel full of hundreds of little boys and girls. I forget what age. Grade school age. And... Uh, he said, I want to talk to you today about prayer. What is prayer? He, he asked the question rhetorically. What is prayer? And about a thousand hands went up. And he, he, he didn't know. So he, he called on one little boy. And the little boy, by memory, said, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. <laughs> and sat down. And Moody was so stunned, he said, Thank God, son, that you were born in Scotland. Meaning, the place where they believe in the catechism. I don't know how you're doing. I... I, I edited a catechism one time and have been hit and miss in using it with my own children because in our hectic lives, it's not easy. But I really commend it to you, and I hope I do better with Talitha, my little five-year-old coming along, to teach answers to questions. Prayer is one of them, and of course, there, that's question 98, and it's not the end. So, let me just take a few of these pieces. I think that's a very good definition of prayer. An offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. So you've got expression of desires, you got according to His will. you got in the name of Jesus. you got proper role of confession of sin. you got gratitude for mercies. Maybe if there's anything missing there, it might be praise. But we'll come to that. So let's just give some biblical examples of some of those. Desires. For God himself expressed, nevertheless, I am continually with you. This is a prayer. You know, you learn how to pray from the Psalms. The Psalms are mainly prayers, not always. And not every Psalm is all one and all the other or all the other. This one is praying. This is talking to God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, 
I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God... It's interesting, isn't it, that it shifts to third person here. The Psalms do that a lot. So you shouldn't fault people too quickly if, if you hear them do that in prayer. It might, be a, it might be owing to thoughtlessness, but it might not be. I don't think it's thoughtlessness here that he shifts from you, 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 you to God is. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So here he says to God, besides you, I desire nothing on earth. I want you. And that surely should be right at the center of our praying. Offering up of our desires unto God, not only for things, but in those things for God. Now let's linger over that for a minute with another text. This issue of... uh, Things. What do you, what do you pray for? Um, let's go to James. I'm gonna skip some things here. Here's a good cautionary text on James four one to five. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So here's prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. But he qualifies that further too. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you ask wrongly. So that, so what's wrong here? This is wrong. So that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's, what's he really mean there? Is it wrong to ask for anything that would be pleasant? Is he saying that? Well, I don't think we'd ask for very much then because hardly anybody asks for pain. Well, that is not always wrong ask for things that we know will be painful. But surely he doesn't mean that when he says, give us this day our daily bread, he means, and it must taste bad when you give it. He doesn't mean that. So what does he mean here? So that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's why you're not getting what you ask. Your motives are wrong. I think the next verses give us light on what's going on there. You adulteresses. Who? comes out of the blue, doesn't it? You adulteresses. Well, you say, oh, I'm not an adulteress. I'm a man. I gotta be an adulteress. You adulteress. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Oh, it's, a, it's an image you're talking about here. Yeah, it's an image. Well, what's the image? The world is your lover. So you're an adulteress. Friendship with the world is hostility to God, your husband. See the image? He calls them adulteresses. 
And then he unpacks the image for them. You become a friend to the world. You become hostile to your husband. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says, He, your husband, God, is jealous, jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. I don't think that should be capitalized. Here's what I think he's he's saying. You can't tell in Greek whether the spirit is your spirit or God's spirit. Here's what I think this image is trying to say. You're not supposed to love the world or the things that are in the world. The love of the world is not from the Father. You're supposed to love the Father, love the will of the Father. Love or change father to husband. You're an adulteress because you're married to God and you're starting to go out and have affairs with the world. What's that got to do with prayer? That's what you're doing when you pray. Prayer is adultery. That's what verse 3 is saying. You ask and do not receive because you ask as an adulteress. What do you mean? Well, the picture I have in my head is this. Here's your bedroom and your husband is in there and he's asleep. And uh, you stayed up to do something. And you're supposed to go get in bed with your husband and spend the night there. And instead, uh, you go in there and you wake him up. And you say, can I have $100? What? Can I have $100? Well, sure. And he reaches over, gets his wallet, opens up, gives you $100. He says, thank you, I'll see you in the morning. And you go down the hall... And you pay your paramour and crawl into bed with him. You buy sex with the money that your husband gave you in answer to your prayer. That's the image here. So we come to God in prayer, not because we love God, not because we want his kingdom to advance, but because we want our $50 to go down and get what we really want. And that's why he says, in my image, he gave it to us. But here it says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I think those pleasures mean pleasures at odds with God, pleasures that don't have God at the center of them, pleasures that are not received for God's sake and pursued for God's sake. This is a striking image adulteresses. You have a husband. You're supposed to ask your husband for things that will enhance the marriage. Don't ask him for things that jeopardize the marriage. Don't use prayer as a means of getting stuff that draw you away from God. Use prayer for things that will draw you toward God, toward your husband. Like she's waking up, can I have a hundred dollars? Yes. And you go out and you buy his favorite breakfast. No, 
or you go down and I don't know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. You, you use that $100 for something that will enhance the relationship, deepen the relationship, strengthen the relationship. Don't, don't use prayer as a way of satisfying non-God-centered desires. Now, this is, a, this is huge. And it's very, a very important thing to get worked out in your own head because I think maybe the most important chapter in my book, Desiring God, is the chapter on prayer. I think it's the probably the deepest and hardest chapter to understand and the most important because there I wrestled with if God is to be our satisfaction, if God is to be our delight, if we're to say, whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides thee, well then, what am I supposed to feel about wife, children, food, ministry? I mean, all these things that are good things, I, mean, I can't desire them, delight in them. That's what I wrestle with in that chapter. Because prayer is all about, why are you asking for a job? Why are you asking for a wife? Why are you asking for passing this test? Why are you asking for health? Why are you asking for your car not to break down? Why are you asking... What is all this horizontal idolatry? Or is it? See? You see the problem? Most people don't wrestle with that at all. Is, is prayer idolatry? Is it adultery or not? What keeps prayer from being adultery? Going to your husband, asking him to pay for what you really like. Food. And I got help from Augustine. He said this. And I, this quote is in Desiring God. He said, asking how desire for non-God relates to desire for God and whether it's idolatry or not. He said, this is a prayer now. He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. That's the best sentence I've ever read on that problem. You love God too little if you love anything together with God, which you love not for God's sake. So pizza, you love pizza? Pepsi? Sex? Success in business? Nice house? Marriage? Children? Ministry? Preaching? Teaching? You love any of that? That might be okay and it might be idolatry. What makes the difference? Do you love it for God's sake? And then you have to ask, what does that mean? And how do I do that? How do, which is really asking for an exposition of 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, whether you eat pizza or drink Diet Pepsi, do all to the glory of God. And if you can't, it's idolatry. So, you got you got to learn how to drink orange juice to the glory of God. It's a, yes, by being born again, being filled with the Holy Spirit, 
and taking on the character of Christ who knew how to both feast and fast so that from inside out we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. Corrupt though we are, we're not after we're born again. We're not only corrupt. Now looking to Jesus, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. And we take that newness and by faith we have new motives. So, let's just... I wrote a, a chapter in The Godward Life on how to drink orange juice to the glory of God. At least I think it's in there. I wrote a Star article about it one time. And I, I tried to think my way through that. How to drink orange juice to the glory of God. And if that sounds nitpicky to you, then I'm not sure what you think 1 Corinthians 10.31 is in the Bible for. Because it says, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. Paul, Paul was choosing the most ordinary daily thing he could think of. Eating and drinking. If you can't figure out how to do that to the glory of God, then laying your life down on the mission field is going to be uh, not going to happen to the glory of God either. Well, one way would be as you... Uh, Look at the orange juice sitting there on the table to thank him for it. Thank him for it. This is from you. You created oranges. And you, in your providence, have so ordained that there be climate like Florida, not Minnesota. And you have ordained that no hurricane wrecked the crop this year. And you could have blown and and all of them would have been ruined. And you ordained that human beings have brains to figure out how to get it from there to here without spoiling. And you granted me the power to make enough money to go buy a jug of orange juice. And you granted me the power to pay for refrigeration. So it can be there for a few days, so it doesn't spoil. And now, here I sit, and you gave me taste buds, and you gave me health, and you enabled my sphincters to work in my throat so that I can swallow. And there's enough to go around here so that I can have the Christ-like joy of sharing the orange juice with my family and watching them enjoy it and having my joy in that juice doubled as they have joy in that juice. And then it really gets down to the nitty-gritty as you don't have enough juice to go around to all four boys. So you pass. And that's Christ-like and that honors the Lord. So you glorify Him by not drinking orange juice. And then they want seconds and there isn't enough for seconds and therefore they have a golden opportunity to glorify God in whether they murmur or not. Um, well, that's a start on how you glorify God in drinking. And then as you drink, you enjoy. So no deny, there's no, no sense in playing games here. It tastes good. It, 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 it's good. And you, there's a pleasure. There's a, there's a physical pleasure. So these pleasures are not, not... Every pleasure is bad. 
But is it, a, is it for God's sake that you're experiencing this pleasure? That is, are you turning it back to God and making it an occasion of gratitude, recognizing that it's from Him and through Him and to Him so that He gets the glory in the providing of it and the taste you experience from it? And then another way would be to say, all right, I have just received refreshment and energy. What are you going to do with that? You can live it for God or not. You can either go out and bark at your employees with the energy you got from God's orange juice, or you can go out and in the energy that God has given you through the orange juice, you can love people with that orange juice given energy from God. So, communion with God in prayer, not using God in prayer. Pray for things that your husband and you will prosper with, that is, that will enhance the relationship and, and will reflect God's value rather than compete with God's value. Question about that? I think the way to translate this, and I could be wrong here, but just see if this seems to work. It's, this is a very difficult Greek construction. Or do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in, you, in us. Now, if that's a small s, what it means is God is jealous of your Spirit for Him. That's what I think it means. God is jealous that your spirit belonged to him rather than giving your spirit to the world. To capitalize it, he jealously desires the spirit. I just, I'm not even sure what that would mean. I can't, I can't put a... Somebody, somebody want to defend this translation and argue what that would mean? He jealously desires the Holy Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. What does that mean? Yeah, go ahead. I get you. Yep. All right. That's a plausible interpretation. I think that the desire for the Spirit here is that we not quench the Spirit. That it, it have a free course to move through us and as it as it moves through us and out from us, to, to bless others in various ways, God meets it as it, him, we shouldn't say it, we're just all stuck in this mode, meets him as he comes and uh, desires him in that sense. That's plausible. But I think it fits the context better to say uh, we are giving our spirit away to an, um, a paramour and making a cuckold out of God. We're cheating on God by giving our spirits away to the world. And they're meant to be for God. But it works either way. And so we don't need to settle that absolutely. One way to stay God-centered in your praying is to pray the Word. I said that last night. I just put this up here as an illustration of it. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just show you that when the church came together to pray in Acts 4, 
They're praying for power. When they had been released, these apostles who had been arrested, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, and then they pray Psalm 2, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David, Father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage? The caps are quotes from the Old Testament. And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And then comes their application of that to their own situation. For truly in this city they were gathered together, etc., So I would just encourage us at Bethlehem and whatever churches you're a part of, try to build into prayer meetings praying the Word. Praying the Word. Now I want us to not, I want to, I want to point out two ways to fall off the horse here so that we can stay on the horse. You can fall off the horse on one side by never taking the Bible into your prayers and praying Scripture back to God. And if if you never do that, your prayers will probably get into not wonderful spontaneity in your own language, but ruts in your own language. The opposite of discipline in Bible memory is not spontaneity, but rut. Oh, man. I grew up in a church where what I remember as a kid are the most absolutely stock prayers that the deacons prayed at the communion table, at the offering, at the prayer meeting. They were just as predictable as the day is long. Lead God and direct. Lead God and direct us, Lord. And we pray for all the missionaries on the home foreign field. And we pray for the requests that are spoken and unspoken and uh, I mean, as a kid, I I was not turned on to God by these prayers. I, I didn't feel there was anything authentic going on here. But when I go to prayer meetings here with those wonderful people who come on Friday morning and Tuesday morning and Sunday morning and Wednesday night, there are not many of you. I wish there were more. That doesn't happen. Because... They pray the Word. Their their minds and their hearts are full of the, the longings of God for His glory in the world. And so when they pray about a marriage or about a kid or about a disease or, or about money for this building or whatever, there's so much God in it, there's so much Bible in it that you know they're dealing with Him. They're not just stuck in a rut learned from 20 years ago how you say something. So don't fall off on the side of the horse that says, uh, I'm not going to use the Bible in any, you know, disciplined or, or memorized way because I want to be spontaneous, which will usually mean in a rut of your own words. There's another side to fall off on, however, and Greg Livingstone, when he was here, gave a beautiful illustration of it. You hear people, some people pray 
And there's so much telling God back to him what he already knows. You want to do what Moody did? And this, I learned this from Greg Livingstone. One time Moody was sitting on the platform and a man stood up to pray. And he went on and on, O thou who created the heavens and the earth, O thou who dost uphold all things, O thou who descent thy Son, O thou who art the great refuge, O thou who... And, and Moody, after about five minutes of this, stood up and tapped him on the shoulder and said, just call him Father and ask him for something. That's the other side of the horse. Don't don't feel like you you got to produce some big, you know, showy. You don't have to do this. You, this they knew this by heart. They didn't get out their Bibles. I don't think and read this. They, this just oozed out of them. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a? You know that that could have gone on for fifteen minutes, and I think Peter would have stood up and said, um, "Just call him Father and ask him to give us power, would you?" which is what they eventually do. Pray the scriptures and it'll be it'll be God-centered. That definition that uh, is in the catechism included communion with God in confession of sin. And I just want to make sure to say a brief word about that because a huge part of our prayer alone and some of it, when we're together, should be to just acknowledge our sin to God. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. All of that because we don't confess our sin. That terrible effect upon us physically, emotionally. Five, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And here's the result. You forgave the guilt of my sin Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. Boy, that's the clearest passage in the Bible I know of to point out the devastating effects of hiding your sins from God and not confessing them. It is so healthy to confess your sins to God, receive forgiveness from God. And it is so sick emotionally to play games with God and try to conceal your sins from God or not to speak of them to God. And it's sick in a, in a church when we can't do it to each other. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another. So there should be occasions when in an appropriate setting, not just blabbing every secret thing in your marriage or your life to everybody, but with a, a select group of of trusted prayers to say, oh God, I blew it last night with my wife or I said something wrong to my kid or I had this awful thought or I hit the wrong button and I actually lingered over this lustful stuff on the computer and I'm just feeling filthy and and you say it. 
That's very crucial. That's very crucial. Um, let me say something here that I, I have found recently. Since last fall, I, I was speaking on this at Trinity Seminary, and the looks that I got back from those students just so blew me away that they hadn't... Like, it's like what I was saying was... You can't mean this, you know. I said... I'll give you the summary statement, which left many of them just absolutely befuddled. I said, it is never right to be angry at God. Ever. And is never right not to tell Him when you are. Is that a contradiction? Is that leave you as befuddled as it did them. It is never right to be angry at God. I believe that with all my heart. Anger at God is always sin. God has never deserved your anger. You may think He does. That's the, that's the problem in your brain because of the way things have gone in your life. I had a very godly woman say to me, last week that she was angry with God. He sinned. He sinned in his anger with God. Exactly. Which is why I said my second thing. If you are, don't you play games with God. In other words, if you do feel this wrong thing, Say it. Because he, he knows it. He knows your feelings. And so, it's two things. You see, most people today that I hear, they think anger's a non-moral issue. Anger's neutral. Doesn't have any meaning. So it doesn't matter if you're angry at God, doesn't matter if you're angry at anybody, what matters is what to do with it. Well, to feel anger at God is sin. But not to tell him so when you do is another sin on top of it, which Job did not commit. That's why we have the record of all that bad theology from his friends and all that self-justification that started coming out from Job. And at the end, he had to put his hand on his mouth, throw dust on his face, and said, I saw you, I heard of you with the hearing of the ear, now I've seen you, and I repent in dust and ashes. Chapter 42, Job is a repentant and broken man after two chapters of God speaking to him at the end. So I want us to be able to handle both of those. It's never right to be angry with God and therefore do your best to see in the providence of God the goodness of God. But if, owing to our own remnants of corruption, which were stirred up off the bottom of Job's life, we, we feel it, what are you going to do with it? Become a hypocrite all of a sudden? doesn't work with God. might work with the church for a little while doesn't ever work with God. He sees straight through. He knows exactly what you're feeling. You may as well say out loud to God what you're feeling. And even in a group of trusted friends, you can say it. That woman said it to me. I'm glad she did. She trusted me with that. She knows what I believe. 
And she knew I wasn't going to pounce on her and say, Ooh, don't ever feel that. I didn't have to say anything to her. Because the next thing out of her mouth was, and I've been confessing it to God, and I've been struggling with this. She's real. She's real. Real sinner. So let's strive toward not being angry, that is not sinning against God by imputing things to Him that are worthy of our uh, moral condemnation. I mean, the only, the only time there should be anger is when there is moral culpability against you. It's real. And even then, it's not always right. You know, John, I say moral culpability to distinguish between broken clutches, bad brakes, bad transmission tray. Uh, Jonathan Edwards used to, he resolved. He had 70 resolutions. One of them was resolved never to get angry at an inanimate object. And the reason he felt strongly about that is because if you get angry at an inanimate object, you're angry at God. Because God runs the world. God runs wind. God does this temperature. You get angry at this temperature because your fingers get cold, you're angry at God. That didn't come from nowhere. Resolve, never get angry at an inanimate object. The right place for Christian indignation is... Sin, your own first. So most anger should be expended at yourself and then the sin of others. But once you learn how God deals with sin, even that's going to be cut way down. Way down. The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God, James 1. Probably. Yeah. The question was, is there a difference between struggling and being angry? Yeah, I think anger can probably exist in such increments that the, the struggle, whether to allow it and experiencing it, experience it is a different thing than suddenly having the full-blown thing and then having to repent of it or do something with it. And that's where we live, really, I think, that struggle level. And to the degree that you come to trust God's sovereign, wise, good, loving providence, to that degree, anger toward Him will tend to go down. If you doubt His wisdom or His love or His power, any one of those three, anger will tend to rise when circumstances hurt you. Because you will either think he's not wise enough to fix it, or he didn't care enough to fix it, or, what's the third one? Wisdom, love, and power. He's not able to fix it. Doesn't have the power, doesn't have the wisdom, or doesn't have the will to fix it. Yeah, it's a very controversial one. I think the solution to anger is not to take the power of hurricanes out of God's hand or the power of cold out of God's hand as though He weren't sovereign, but to go further 
and put wisdom, love, and power into his hand. Acknowledge that it's there. So you, you could pull the plug on anger at God by saying, God didn't do this. God did not cause this cold. God did not providentially rule over your broken car. God was not a sovereign and in control when the marriage broke down. God was on and on and on the list goes. You could solve the problem of anger with God that way. And that's a big theological jump that m most Americans make. I, I don't think that's biblical. I think the solution to that is to say, God, I don't understand it, but you are wise, you are all-powerful, and you are all-loving. And somehow, in and through all this pain, and uh, that earthquake, or this family crisis, you have my best interest at heart, and you're going to bring through this whole thing something good for the glory of your name and the joy of our own souls, and I trust you. That's, that's the way I'm going to counsel you if you ever come to me with pain. I'm not going to I'm not going to dump on your anger and your tears. I'm just going to try to patiently direct you to God. And I won't, I won't, I won't say God didn't have anything to do with that pain. I won't say he, he doesn't have power. I won't say He doesn't have love. And I won't say He doesn't have wisdom. I will try to help you patiently walk through that crisis when it's hard for you to believe that. I'll try to help you believe it. To believe for you. Pray with you. Put put stories before you like the story of Joseph or the story of Job or the story of Jesus Christ to show how... I mean, isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful that James, chapter 5, verse 11, tells us the point of the book of Job? Do you know that? You ever wonder, oh, what's the meaning of the book of Job? 30, 42 chapters of bad theology or maybe 38 chapters of bad theology. Uh, what's the point of that? Here's the point. I'll read it to you. We count those blessed who endured, who endured. You have heard the endurance of Job and have seen the goal of the Lord's dealings. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Period. End of story. The point of the book of Job is the compassion and mercy of God in and through the satanic attack on one of his best saints. Um, confess your sins. Be honest with God. There's no point in hiding anger or any other sin that you've got. The most horrible things... Oh that, oh, that people would believe this because I, I know that, that addictions and food addictions and drug addictions and alcohol addictions and caffeine addictions and work addictions are, are mainly driven. I don't know if I can say mainly. In, in, in many cases are driven by people's locked up lives. There's something in there. They're scared to death. If people knew it for what it was, if they knew them, what happened when they were teenagers, what happened when they were kids, what they did at work, what they really consistently feel, they would they would be rejected. They would, life would be an absolute 
utter chaos and mess. And so that undealt with stuff that's wrecking the life here, my body wasted away, groaning all day. What do you do with that? You meditate it. Eat, 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 eat. Drink, 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 drink. Shoot up, sniff, whatever. You do what you got to do to handle the pain, but you're not going to take it out because it's too scary. So don't do that. Don't do that. That's what. Communion with God will be deepened and enhanced. You cut yourself off from people. You cut yourself off from God. It's a sweet thing in a church where we can trust each other enough to get the worst stories out on the table to the trusted few and uh, have them love us in spite of them and then begin to be free from it and its effects. Yeah, go ahead. The text is Ephesians 4, what she's referring to. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So clearly in that text, not all anger is sin. I didn't mean to communicate that it was. I don't think that has anything to do with anger to God. Um, I think that is um, like Jesus saying, if you know that your brother has aught against you, uh, get it fixed and then go offer your offering. Um some anger is appropriate. Jesus was clearly angry. It says when, when the, the man with the withered hand in Mark 3 was about to be healed and, and they were all upset that he's going to heal on the Sabbath day, it says he looked around upon them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Those two emotions side by side, anger and grief. If we could put those two side by side, we might have a close thing to righteous anger. In other words, if you get angry at some political thing or some, get angry at abortion, get angry at lying and spinning in public life or, or whatever, um, get angry at sin, whether that anger gets out of hand so that James kicks in with the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God, when does that kick in? Probably it kicks in when, number one, it lasts too long and seethes, which is why you got to get rid of it before the sun goes down. In other words, it might be appropriate to feel an indignation, but if you nurture that thing, it'll eat you alive. And if you to go to bed with it and sleep on it and wake up and then have it again, over time, the emotional effect of going to bed on anger, going to bed on anger. And really, I think in that context, it's probably unresolved conflict. That happens over and over in a marriage or between a, a, a parent and a child. Well, you can just watch the distance appear, just like that. The distance between the son and the father. I've had four sons, and I've had disputes with all of them, big time. Big, big collisions. Big angry moments. Sometimes justified, mostly not. When I'm doing the anger. And they're clearly doing the anger too. But I've got my share. And in anger, they're little. 
me spanking in a way that you shouldn't have. I believe in spanking, but careful spanking. Or if they're older, the door gets slammed, you stay in there. When you're ready to talk right to your mother, then you come out. Now, what do you do at that moment? What happens to that relationship? You got two, three hours before the sun, before you're going to go to bed. You just, he comes out, he's playing his music, he's doing his homework, and nothing is said. That's the way a lot of families handle it. It just, you just go to bed. That happens 800 times in growing up. You got major problems for that next, for, for that kid's marriage. And so on. So, what should the dad do? The dad is responsible here. I mean, the kid is going to be held responsible by God, but the dad is doubly responsible for his anger, and even if he didn't sin in the anger that he had, it was wholly appropriate. His responsibility is to get this thing fixed in as much as he can. Like it says in Romans 12, in as much as it lies in you, live at peace with all men. Well, you can't make that kid happy, but you can try. So an hour later, kid comes out before you go to bed. Say, let's just talk for a minute, okay? Noel, come here. Okay. Now at supper time, it didn't go well. And I got really mad because of what you said. Pick, pick Barnabas because he's the easiest to pick on because he's nice. <laughs> so what you said, Barnabas, really made me mad. That's not the way to talk to your mother. I, I don't want you to defend yourself right now because she did this or that. I know that's what you were thinking. And I don't want to, I don't want to get between here. I just want to say we all know it didn't happen the way it should have happened. The way it should have. We didn't fix this right. I got angrier than I should. I'm sorry, Barnabas. You did wrong, but I got, I did wrong. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Oh, that is healing. For a dad to apologize to a teenage kid is massively healing. So many teenagers never taste that from their dads. Never feel a broken dad. Don't ever see any manliness modeled in brokenness, humility, and I blew it. So I think don't let the sun go down on your wrath means some kind of dynamic like that, probably. Don't don't just go to bed on a broken relationship in as much as it lies within you. Now, Jesus went to bed every night on broken relationships with the Pharisees. And there's always going to be people in your life that are mad at you. And you can't wear the whole burden of the world. I mean, i got enemies everywhere who don't like what I think about Calvinism or what I think about manhood and womanhood or what I think about the foreknowledge of God or what I'm... Just all kinds of things. They think John Piper is arrogant and proud and doctrinaire and and whatever, you know, just however you want to put the spin on the thing. And you just you say, okay, uh, I can respond to some of that mail and I can reach out to some people that I know and say, uh, but I don't respond to all of it. I can't. It's just too many. <laughs> and they live all over the world. And and uh, I can't get at them. And I just take real comfort from the fact that in my church here, uh, there's one of you, a 
did this a week ago with. I don't think you're here. I wouldn't even mind telling you who it was. but So I, I was very abrupt and I think unpastoral and unkind with someone two weeks ago. And, and I, my conscience just was so bad all day long. I said, oh man, that dishonored the Lord. It just, it, if, if I don't fix this, it'll smooth over. They'll be nice to me. I know they will. They're nice people. And, and, but but it, there'll always be this distance that's going to grow. So I called him up in the evening and he picked up the phone. I said, hi, this is Pastor John. He said, oh, like, I did not expect this because you seemed upset this morning. And I just had to say, I just didn't talk the way I should have at all this morning. And I said, I love you guys. I'm sorry. Uh, and then moved on from there. I think I had to do that. I had to. I was upset and I just didn't handle it badly at all. Well, I've probably spent enough time asking that question. I don't know if that even gets at what you were asking. Is that We could talk a long time about thanks. Be sure that thanks is included in your prayers. That's what those two texts were going to be. Be sure a lot of thanksgiving is in your prayers. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let every prayer you pray almost, don't have to be legalistic about that, have a lot of thanksgiving in it. And then there's a times and places and how often should you pray and the Bible says pray without ceasing so you live in a spirit of prayer all day you keep offering up your desires to God and pleading for help for everything you go through but alongside that spontaneous daily hourly moment by moment praying there are these set times like Psalm 119 164 seven times a day I praise you isn't that amazing because of your righteousness, or Daniel. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, that nobody should pray to anybody but the king, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open to Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before God. That's that's uh, civil disobedience in your face with a vengeance. Right? we got the law of the Medes and Persians, can't be broken. Only pray to the king, and he goes before an open window three times a day and gets down on his knees facing Jerusalem and prays, Oh, Jehovah, Yahweh, you are my God. Well, you're in the lion's den, fella. That's good. But the point is, three times. Three times there, seven times here. So, here's the question. What's your pattern? And you say, I don't have a pattern. I pray all day. That's not good. Because that will not work in the end. Spontaneity without some discipline becomes worldliness in the end and rut. Nobody is purely spontaneous. Spontaneity of the most creative kind grows out of some of the most rigorous disciplines of life. It's like farming. One of the most spontaneous things about farming is that corn comes up out of the ground. There it is. Knee high by the 4th of July, if you live in Nebraska. And 
And it, it, it just grows, and the farmer watches it. Wow, man, that's exactly what I want. Spontaneous growth in the field. Well, there was some sweat behind that, you know. He plowed the field. He planted the seed. Spontaneity grows in the field of well-furrowed rows. You want spontaneity? Stick with the discipline. I'm not telling you what the discipline should look like for you. Because I, I don't think we should do that for each other. I've got to read the Bible an hour a day. I've got to read the Bible 30 minutes a day. You've got to pray an hour. You've got to pray... Well, you got to do it three times, or you got to do it seven times, or you got to do it in the morning, or you got to do it in the evening, or you got to do it morning, noon, and evening. But what I'm saying is, find it. Look for it. Change it now and then. Ask if you're satisfied right now. And if you're not, take ten minutes this afternoon. That's all. Ten minutes to plan how it would look this week. Different than now. The reason we don't change our disciplines is that we don't plan to change them. We just keep getting up ten minutes before it's supposed to happen and there's no time left and so it never changes. But if you take ten minutes to plan, you know this is this is true of all of life. You know the guys who write books about management like One Minute Manager and that sort of stuff? They make millions of dollars and you know they only have one message? I picked up one in an airport one time and I just flopped it open to the middle. And uh, this is a book that's probably sold, you know, Five million copies to, to people who run churches and businesses and, and, and everything. They run the world. And, and I just slopped it open, a book on management, and it said, if you get nothing else in this book, get this. Take the first ten minutes of your day to plan the rest and prioritize the things that have to happen in it, period. And for that, he makes a million dollars a year. That's true. That's not a joke. Because when you hold these seminars, basically what they say to businessmen is, do what you know already to do. These businessmen who go to these seminars, these success seminars, these time management seminars, try to figure out how to do their lives, they know how to do their lives. They never learn one new thing at those seminars. They just get the inspiration to do what they know to do. They get the motivation because these guys are so creative, these Zig Ziglar types are so creative and so motivational, inspirational, the guy says, yeah, I should get up ten minutes earlier and plan my day. And they come back at the end of the year and say, here's your million dollars because it works. And it does. It does. If you will take ten minutes to plan your day and how Jesus and, and Bible reading fit into it, instead of just running to breakfast, running to the newspaper, running to uh, put your clothes on, running to shave, and then realizing there's no time for the Bible, and running off to work, and doing the same thing the next day, and the same thing the next day, and the same... Well, of course it never works. But if somebody could inspire you to do the obvious, namely take five or ten minutes to plan where it's going to fit in the day and then put it in your calendar and call it an appointment and don't accept any other appointments because it's blocked off, it's going to happen. But that takes five or ten minutes to do that. It doesn't happen without discipline. So without telling you what it should look like, I just say it should look like. It should be there. Any question about that? In dis that discipline dimension... Over against spontaneity. Both are absolutely crucial. We want to be spontaneous. We want to be able to pray in the car and pray while we're pushing a lawnmower and pray while we're shoveling snow and pray while we're jogging on a jogging machine and pray, pray, pray without ceasing all day long. That's part of it. But you better be alone with God over the Bible for certain times every day. And try different times and try different ways. Don't let it get too old.